We're going this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, the first chapter of 1 Peter. And I trust by God's grace that from this passage we might find cause for encouragement and comfort as the people of God. For indeed, Peter was writing to discouraged and oppressed people and writing in order that he might instruct them and lift their spirits together. So we'll read the first chapter of First Peter and then, God helping, look together at this portion of God's word. Let us all hear the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, 
who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Amen. May God bless the reading of the word. Let us bow once again and ask his favor upon us. Mighty God and Father in heaven, when justice would have left us in our blindness and darkness to stumble about into sin and ultimately into hell, we thank thee that you intervene to give us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, even the word of God. And that we have the scriptures before us in our own language today, published more abundantly in this age than in any age before. Grant that we might avail ourselves of this blessing, of this grace, with great zeal and desire today. Grant anointing for the proclamation proclamation of the word of God and may the spirit of God apply it effectually to each of our hearts for good and for your glory bless our brother as he preaches in Allentown today the pastor of this flock give him anointing in the sense of your presence yea may the wind of Pentecost be at his back and may he be borne along in the proclamation of truth by your spirit and may the same be granted unto us in your vast mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in nearly 45 years of pastoral ministry, I've come to recognize that one never stands in a pulpit knowing all that is before him in terms of the needs of the hearer. I don't know what needs might be upon your heart today, some of them consciously known, perhaps heavy burdens being born. But the Spirit of God knows those and is able certainly to tailor the presentation of his truth in application to the exact needs of the hour, how often he has done so and how graciously. We live in a needy time. There is no doubt about it. Simply on the public sphere, with the unrest about us, not only politically in this country, 
but especially morally in the rejection of God, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of the truth that he has given unto us. It can make the people of God feel isolated, certainly. Feel very much not at home and very much ill at ease with all of the wickedness that abounds. Peter speaks of us as being pilgrims, and indeed we are strangers in this world. And the people of God can easily despair if they look outward much at the wickedness that abounds around us and the violence that fills the world at large. The Apostle Peter, in this epistle that we've begun to read this morning, writes to some oppressed people. And I would say that the oppression they feel and suffer is far greater than anything we might know in our own experience. And the comfort he offers to them, if it is sufficient for those suffering such oppression as they bore, is surely sufficient for those who suffer lesser oppression among us. And so I want us to look together at the comforts that the Spirit of God offers through the writing of the Apostle Peter. You notice in the first verse that he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered. That's how he describes the recipient of his letter. Strangers scattered. Neither of those terms suggest anything warm or inviting, do they? Have you ever been a stranger? Doubtless you have. You've been in a place where no one knew you at all. You were the only one who knew you. And there you were, feeling isolated, perhaps insecure. And those stranger circumstances are not things that you take great pleasure in. They at times are evils necessary to what you are called to do, perhaps in your work or whatever or wherever. Strangers, much more could be said about that. It's not a warm and friendly term. Scattered. We don't like the idea of being scattered. To be scattered suggests that things are not under your control. That circumstances have come upon you which have brought about disorder, stress, lack of structure. And when you put the two together, scattered strangers, you know you're not talking about a people that are enjoying the best and most pleasant of life. They are scattered strangers. That's who Peter is writing to. These were God-fearing people, at least people who had professed faith in Christ, and they are scattered strangers because they are fleeing from persecution. That's something that most of us don't know. We have lived in a country of freedom, where the freedom to worship Christ unoppressed abounds around us. We take it for granted. We haven't the slightest notion what it's like to be hunted and hounded by those who would persecute us for what we believe. That was the circumstance of those to whom Peter wrote. 
And so he refers to them uh, in the scriptures here, uh, verse number six. Now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. Heaviness. Many testings. Manifold temptation. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, he's speaking about the trial of their faith. They professed faith in Christ as a Savior. Is this what salvation is? I've been run from my home. My possessions are no longer mine. I'm isolated from family and friend. My close associates have been martyred, and I may be next. This is the circumstance of the people to whom Peter writes. It is not our circumstance. It could well be. At times we have problems of various natures. Not just persecution possible or being scattered, but illness. Children who are suffering illness. Children who perhaps have gone astray and rejected what we believe to be true and necessary. The list can go on. It is as long as is the number of people hearing this word at any time. Peter writes to such people. Saints that are scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he writes, in order to fortify them, in order to exhort them that they in those circumstances might stir up themselves unto truth. That they might, to use his terms, gird up the loins of their mind. You get that image, what that is. In the age in which Peter wrote, men wore long and flowing gowns of sore. That was the standard clothing. And if you try to run and make haste in such garments, uh, you will trip, you will be uh, slowed. And so if there was work to be done, or if there had to be a fast flight made, They would reach down and pull up the hem of that garment and wrap it and tie it around their waist, girding up their loins. And now their legs were free to move. They were free to work, to do what was needed. And he says to them, in the midst of all of these afflictions of scattered strangers, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end for the grace which shall be brought to you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And whatever our oppressions or circumstances may be, you know. The challenge to us is to gird up the loins of our mind. And to set our sights with finality upon the fact that Christ will come. That he will come for the deliverance ultimately and eternally of his people. And we gird up the loins of our mind by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it is that which Peter is imparting to his scattered stranger brethren throughout the region who have fled from their lives, who have lost their homes, who have lost their inheritance. They are gone. They have nothing. 
nothing but God. And Peter reminds them of that and sets before them the riches that they have because of that for their own comfort to sustain them through trials such as none of us know. And if they are such as to sustain a believer in the midst of unspeakable trials beyond what we can imagine, then they are sufficient for us as well in the lesser trials, whatever they may be. And so I want us to see five points of truth that Peter brings to their attention as he writes to them that he might encourage them to gird up the loins of their mind, to hope with finality and confidence unto the end. And the first of those is right there in the second verse. He responds to them, refers to them rather as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. These are people who have been rejected. Rejected by their communities. Rejected by the religious elites, even as Christ and the apostles were. Rejected by family. And the rejection has been of such intensity that they can no longer live where they have been born and raised. Their lives are on the line and they have run for their life, perhaps able to take nothing with them. But this is the point Peter brings out to their attention. Though all may have rejected you, God has elected you. Therefore, you are wanting for nothing. What can man offer that is greater than what God offers. What have you lost if you've lost everything you own and yet are owned by the one who owns all things? And you didn't do it of your own working. You didn't choose him, he chose you. And so you are elect of God. And the fact that God's people are chosen of our God is to their everlasting consolation. And may we never lose sight of the blessedness of this truth. When I deserved only hell, the God of holiness and grace made me his own. And chose me that I might be his. Oh, may I recognize and embrace the fact that though all men reject me for Christ's sake, and I know nothing of what that's like, but should it be that all men would reject me for Christ's sake, that in itself is only a confirmation that God has chosen me as his own and that I am his. And if God be for us, who can be against us? This is the truth that Peter brings to these scattered strangers and to us today. God grant to us 
that we might apprehend this and cling to it, whatever befall us. For God has the heart of the king in his hand and turns it whithersoever he will. None can stay his hand, nor say unto him, What doest thou? He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And all of those infinite beauties of Almighty God are wrought for me when I am in Christ. And he has chosen me to that purpose. A second thing that Peter brings to their attention. As we continue in verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Now let's just stop and consider that within the historical context in which Peter is writing. These are people who because they are scattered abroad, though they are alive, they've not been martyred yet, yet nonetheless their life has been taken from them. If you suddenly had to flee from where you are in life, where you've lived, where you live, and where you are established, flee to a distant unknown place where you are a stranger, scattered and separated from all that you've known, you would feel and perhaps even say, I've lost my life. Yes, you're alive. But the life which you've known, the life which you've developed, the possessions you've accumulated, the security you have woven around yourself, it's gone. I've lost my life. That is the circumstance of the ones to whom Peter writes. And so he says to them, not only are you elect, but though you've lost your life, you in fact have been born again. You've been begotten again by the power of the one who chose you when everyone else rejected you. You have a new life. As the Apostle Paul would write to the Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. How could Paul say that? Because he was born a second time. Born again. The first life that we have is indeed one that can be taken from us. It shall be. Every one of us, within the next few decades or half century or centuries, surely will be laid in a grave. And the life that which we love, which we revel in, which we work to sustain and enlarge, will only be will only be a little line in the whole history of humanity, which no one reads. But in Christ, whatever befall, we've been begotten again. And he says begotten again unto 
a lively hope, literally a living hope. Though they might take away all of your possessions and all of your reputation and everything that is familiar to you, what you have is a hope that cannot die, a living hope. And in fact, the liveliness, the livingness of that hope is tied directly to the fact that Christ rose again from the dead. They thought they had taken away his life. (laughs) He surprised them all. They could not extinguish the life of God in God the Son. In him was life and life forevermore. And so Peter says he's begotten you again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, as he speaks about this living hope, he goes yet a step further and tells them that within this living hope, they have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Remember, these are people who've lost their inheritance. They're scattered strangers, pilgrims, lost everything. But the inheritance that they lost was a corruptible inheritance. That's why it was lost. They, because they are begotten again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Christ, have an incorruptible inheritance. Probably talking to some people here who at some time or another in their life have received somewhat of an inheritance, maybe a complete inheritance from parents or whatever, and uh, you know what that is. But every inheritance upon this earth is a defiled inheritance. Uh, You get, let's say, a property that you have inherited from family. Guess what? Now you have a new annual tax bill. And not only that, but you have to maintain the property. You've got to make sure that there's heat inside in conditions like we have today outdoors or all the pipes will freeze and burst and then you've got a big plumbing bill. You've got to maintain that property in addition to pay the taxes on it. And it begins to be something on your mind in addition to all the other list of things you have to do. And it becomes a burden. And perhaps you can move into it and occupy it and glad to have it, but the maintenance has to continue. It continues to deteriorate. You have to continue to keep it clean and to mow the lawn and all of the other things involved. In other words, every inheritance you receive on earth is corruptible. It's in the state of decline. And to the strangers scattered who've had to flee from what was theirs by inheritance, they're reminded, 
you had a corruptible inheritance, but now by the living hope of the new birth, you have an incorruptible inheritance. And then he says concerning that inheritance, not only is it incorruptible, but it's undefiled. Every inheritance that you receive, you receive from a sinner. You receive a portion of a national economy that is not set upon truth or righteousness, but set upon unrighteousness. What is it people spend their money on? The kingdom of God? No. The kingdom of man, self, greed, lust. All of these things are a part of the economies of this world, which will come to nothing when the government that hosts that economy has failed. And how many fortunes throughout history have been reduced to nothing when war came and the country in which the fortune holder lived was overtaken and suddenly the currency of that country is nothing more than something to light a fire with to try to keep warm. Defiled. And how many inheritances exist to pass along to another generation because it is wealth accumulated by means of wickedness? We consider the great wealthy families of this country. And where did the wealth come from? How much blood was shed? How many laborers abused? How much unrewarded work rendered in order for the originator of that inheritance to accumulate his wealth? which he now passes along, you receive by inheritance blood money. I think of the Kennedy family and its reputation for political power in this country and the despicable means by which the patriarch Joseph Kennedy came into his wealth through the importing of liquor with the attitude that he once spoke, I'm told, let's do it before they make a law against it. And so his heirs receive. The inheritance of the people of God who are born again is an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance. And there's a third descriptor, it fadeth not away. Now, let's say you inherit a lovely classic automobile, but it will rust. You'll have to do some work waxing it to keep that shine on it. And like the property, the real estate, the house that must be maintained, everything you inherit in this life is in the process of fading away. Not only that, but especially the meaning here, it seems, is it no longer charms you like it once did. You set your sights on something you would love to have. That's your goal. And you strive to get it. 
And once you've gotten it, there is a momentary euphoria over having achieved that goal and succeeded in getting that prize. The time goes, not that much time, and the fulfillment and gratification you thought would come from it just isn't what it was the moment after you purchased it. You're not talking about it as much now. The shine has faded to your own perception. And soon it's just another possession. Oh well. And the people who are scattered strangers, Peter says, in the place of such an inheritance which is defiled and fading in your esteem, you've received an incorruptible and hated inheritance that fadeth not away. So while you are separated from all that was of value to you, scattered strangers keep this before you. Though all men have rejected you, God has elected you. And though all that you had has been taken, you have been given a new life, a life that is endless life and accompanied to it is an everlasting inheritance that is undefiled and unfading. In other words, you'll never get tired of heaven. You'll never be bored in the presence of the creator of the ends of the earth and all other things. You will never fail to enjoy the one whose mercies are new every morning. So in the midst of your loss and suffering, begin now to enjoy them. For indeed, when you've lost all that is on this earth, does that not cause you to see all that is in Christ to be all the richer and of greater value? A third truth that Peter brings to these suffering saints. There in verse number five, who are kept by the power of God. Just stop and ponder that fact. You are kept by the power of God. The psalmist could write, the Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. We tend to put our confidence and security in stuff that will all perish. But those things don't keep us. Those are the things which erode us away. Those are the things which captify our, captify our minds and our thoughts and in fact hold us in bondage. We're kept by the power of God. Now what does that mean? I don't know what that means. There is not a power in all the universe but what it originates in God himself. I don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about the power of an atom. But I understand that there is encapsulated in every atom a power which 
the, the nuclear world has learned to grasp and unleash. The greatest of nuclear explosions, the most violent of volcanic eruptions, the most devastating of flooding hurricanes are but small little glimpses at a power that is infinite. Boundless, endless power. That is God. And we are kept by the power of God through faith. Kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In other words, you are kept now by the power of God but there's much more to be revealed. There's much more ahead. What you've lost, what is that? The powers that be by which those things have been taken from you, what is that? You are kept by the power of God. Not by any work that you've done, but simply by clinging by faith unto Christ. We are kept by the power of God through faith and there is a great enlarged revelation thereof yet to be seen. And then, so much more could be said there, but a fourth point of promise that he gives to them, point of encouragement in verse number seven, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold than perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The appearing of Jesus Christ is yet to come. What are those things which have disappeared that you've loved and embraced contrasted with the appearing of Jesus Christ? He is returning. At best, the life that you've lost couldn't continue. And though you may have escaped death by the skin of your teeth, you've only done so for a very, very brief time. Because soon every one of us will sleep the sleep of death. But then there's the sound of the trumpet. Then there's the dead in Christ who rise. Then the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's set our sights, as we've read later in the passage, upon that appearing of Christ. And whatever our affliction, our prayer can be, Come, Lord Jesus. And that prayer will be answered. He will come. We hasten to a final point. There's more here that Peter gives for their comfort, and I encourage you to read the entire epistle with that question. What else did Peter here give for the comfort of these scattered saints? But for our purposes today, the fifth in verse 9 
receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Faith has a certain end. That does not mean a termination, but an objective unto which it grips. The salvation of the soul is that upon which and unto which our faith is set. And in fact, that end will be received. Never will one of God's elect, one of God's reborn, appear in his presence to be told, your faith did not count. No, you will receive the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. And lest, lest we underestimate the worth of the salvation of the soul, uh, Peter gives two examples of its worth, its weight. He says there in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Now, to the believers in Christ, the prophets of old were held in very high esteem. They were the writers of the word of God. We would not know God had not the prophets revealed him in their revelations and writings. But we've got something the prophets didn't have. The prophets who were the anointed spokesmen for God unto whom was revealed the great truth upon which we stand, yet did not have revealed to them the truth that is now revealed to us regarding salvation. They searched. What manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did testify signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets of old, they wrote of these things and thought to themselves, what is this? They searched diligently. They longed to know about this salvation and the means by which God would become man of which they wrote they did not understand. And the fact that the servant of Jehovah would come as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, as we know well from the Gospels and the Epistles' explanation, they did not know and they wanted to know, hey, scattered saints, suffering, recognize that you have in your salvation something that the prophets would have given their lives to have and were told it wasn't for them to know about it. But you do dwell on that. That's something of the worth of the salvation we have. Not that the prophets were not saved. I'm not suggesting that at all. They were the elect, the chosen of God. But they didn't know what we know. We know it because they wrote and because their writings were further illumined by the apostles who wrote in the New Testament. But 
while you're suffering persecution, scattered saints, the salvation for which you are being persecuted and the knowledge that you have of that salvation is something the prophets of old searched diligently for and finally had to accept that it wasn't revealed for their time, for them. Not only the prophets, but we read a little bit further where in verse 12, he writes, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Not only did the prophets desire to know these things that you have and know them, but the angels desire to look into them and it's hidden from them. The angels that sinned and left their first estate are reserved in chains unto judgment and there is no salvation for them. And the angels that did not leave their first estate look at their fellow angels reserved for judgment and look at humans who unlike the angels were created in the image of God and yet have spurned that image and the one whose image it is, the angels look at sinners saved by grace and they see something that no angel can ever have and they desire to look into it. And the scattered saints suffering their affliction are possessors of something that the angels want to see but cannot know and cannot experience. And so with these five items that we observe, the Apostle Peter writes to encourage scattered saints. And may it be an encouragement for the saints gathered here today. And whatever burdens you may be bearing, May these truths undergird your spirit and enable you to bear up beneath the weight, even as they would enable the saints to whom Peter wrote to bear up beneath the weight. And by conclusion, let us recognize then three incorruptible things that we have. First of all, in verse number four, the incorruptible inheritance that has been spoken of already. But then we come down to verse 18 and find that we are redeemed, not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Well, the incorruptible inheritance that we have is an incorruptible inheritance because it is secured by an incorruptible payment. We're not redeemed with corruptible things. We're not purchased with corruptible things, but incorruptible, the blood of Christ. And then a third incorruptible thing that we are given we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible 
by the word of God. One time, I was born an infant in Harford Memorial Hospital. I was born the offspring of my father and my mother who lie side by side in a Harford County grave. And because I was born their offspring and they are both dead, I will die. I was born of corruptible seed, and so were you. But then the word of God brought the life of God to my own soul. And I was born again, and when I was born again, it was not like the first time I was born of corruptible seed. It was rather with an incorruptible seed that liveth and abideth forever. The scriptures are living. They shall abide forever. And that which is begotten of the scripture will bear the very character of the scripture in living and abiding forever. And thus, our incorruptible inheritance, which is secured for us by the incorruptible payment with Christ's blood, is brought to my very experience by the incorruptible word. And this, for the consolation, fortification, and joy of scattered strangers. Shall we bow together as we pray? Almighty God and gracious Father, who sent his Son into this world to save sinners, we thank you that you've not left us unto wrath, but have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, redeemed us in time by the sacrifice of your Son, and brought us unto his life by the incorruptible word. Bless this precious congregation with the truth of your word this day and bless these labors in the word unto the everlasting life and joy of all who hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.